0: Good morning, everyone, and good morning to those who are joining us online as well today. If you would like to use a Bible today as we are diving into this next section of the book of Acts with our Mission Impossible series, just raise your hand, the ushers will be walking up and down the aisles with Bibles that you can use during the service, and when we get to those sections, I'll give you the page numbers so you can follow along with us. Whenever you have a problem and you need to make a decision about it, there are always three ways that you can deal with it, right? You can decide yes, you can decide no, or you can decide you don't have enough information yet, and you can table it, right? You can go forward, you can go backward, or you can go nowhere. And today in the book of Acts, we're at the part of the story where Paul becomes Rome's problem. So how do you solve a problem like Paul of Tarsus? That's, that's where we are today. And Paul is the kind of problem where wherever he goes, riots tend to happen. So he's kind of a problem because claiming that Jesus is God's resurrected Messiah is landing him in a lot of trouble with the Jewish authorities because Paul used to be their poster boy and now he's clearly gone off the rails and uh, he's committed the crime of no longer being Jewish enough for them. So, in Acts 22, the temple leaders demand that Paul be arrested as a troublemaker, and the Roman authorities are more than happy to drag him off to be flogged, apparently without any kind of charge at all, until Paul tells them that he is actually a Roman citizen, and that changes everything. Because while they could do whatever they wanted to conquered people groups, it wasn't illegal for a Roman citizen to not be Jewish enough. Paul had rights. Now, as every political leader knows, you want to make your constituents happy, and the Jewish leaders were not going to be happy if Paul was set free. But Rome wouldn't be happy with any leader who would surrender a Roman citizen who had committed no Roman crime to execution at the hands of a minority group just to make them happy. A decision like that could make that Roman leader get killed. So, you can see the problem. Can't kill him, can't set him free, So how do you solve a problem like Paul of Tarsus? You choose option three and you table him. And the chapters that we're covering today, those in power consistently choose to table the Paul issue. They kind of put a post-it note on him to say, deal with this later, and then they put him back in jail for years. In chapters 23 through 26 of Acts, Paul is shuffled from Lysias to Felix to Festus to Agrippa, finally to Rome, kind of like a potato in a very slow game of political hot potato that spans years. So in this season of his life, Paul is stuck in nowhere land. He's not actively on his way to freedom or to death, but he knows in any moment things could go either way. He's in a holding pattern with a very uncertain future. Have you ever been in a place like that? Ever felt like your life was in a holding pattern with an uncertain future? Not going forward, not going backward, seeming to go nowhere at all? And do you wonder, God, what are you doing? How is God moving when it seems like nothing is? Well, up until now, Paul has been on fire. He's been spreading the gospel everywhere he goes, and it was Jesus himself who turned Paul's life upside down to make him this powerful evangelist for the gospel. So why would Jesus now leave him in chains behind bars for years? What a waste for the kingdom, we might think. This is terrible. But is it? Prophet Isaiah reminds us in Isaiah 55 that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And it's so easy for us to think that we know what's good and what's not, especially when we feel what's happening to us is clearly not. But at times like this, we need to ask the Lord to let us see, not with our eyes, but with His, so we don't miss what He's actually doing in our lives. There's a story of a man who was in deep despair. He felt like he was at the end of his rope. And looking for any kind of hope, he went for a walk and he started to pray, God, if you're real, if you're actually anywhere, just show me. And at that moment, he found himself walking under a bridge and he looked up and he saw these spray-painted letters. And in despair, he dropped to his knees and feeling completely alone, he started muttering, nowhere, I am nowhere. But then in that moment, he suddenly felt an overwhelmingly unexplainable presence. And he had the urge to look up again at those letters. And this time, as the sun broke through, he saw in them something different. Not, I am nowhere, I am now here. And suddenly that lonely place was very full of a presence greater than him. And his despair turned to awe and wonder in the presence of one for whom there is no such place as nowhere, the one whose presence transforms our nowhere into the holiest of holies, the most real of all real places, is with him. And the truth is, no matter how alone or how stuck you may feel, you are never alone No matter what kind of situation you're in, that's Jesus' promise to you and to me in this impossible mission. He says, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And when your situation seems impossible to you, it can be easy to forget that. But there is no such place as nowhere for the God who is now here with you. So, beloved, today I want you to know what Paul discovered that even when you feel like you're nowhere, the truth is he is now here with you. That even in the in-between places, Jesus is at work. And I think this is one of the greatest gifts that we have in the word of God, because we get to see people like Paul wrestle with these things. And then through the unfolding of time, we get to see what Paul couldn't see at that moment, that God was using these seasons for his glory. And that helps us to trust that Jesus is working in our seasons of in-between too. So with that, let's get into Paul's story. We're covering a big chunk of Acts 23 through 26 today. So if you'd like to follow along in the Bible, we'll start on page 1634 of your Quest Bible. And just to get us up to speed, at this point, Paul has just been arrested in Jerusalem. And then he told them he was a Roman citizen. So the commander took him off the flogging post and brought him back inside to the Sanhedrin to find out what was going on. And in that mess, Paul announced the reason he was in trouble. And he said this I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Which was actually a very cleverly calculated statement. It was technically true, since Paul proclaiming Jesus rose from the dead was what was getting him in trouble, but Paul also knew that without one statement, he would start a fight. Because the Pharisees believed in a resurrection, the Sadducees did not, so when Paul lobbed this theological grenade into the mix, those two factions forgot all about Paul and they started fighting each other. Instant smokescreen. It was brilliant. And the Roman commander was so baffled by this chaos that just erupted around him, eventually he just grabbed Paul and got out of there, stuck him in jail until he could figure out what in the world was going on. And the season of Paul's Roman incarceration begins. And then shortly after that, in chapter 23, Paul's nephew, who was just a little boy at the time, overheard 40 men had vowed not to eat anything until they killed Paul. So he found his uncle Paul at the jail to tell him about it. And Paul tells the boy to go talk to the commander. And that actually works. The commander listens to him. And so in Acts 23, the commander, whose name is Claudius Lysias, decides he needs to protect Paul by moving him. And because Rome doesn't do anything small, at nine o'clock that night, 200 foot soldiers and 70 horsemen leave with Paul to go to Governor Felix in Caesarea. Now, remember, mere hours ago, these soldiers were going to flog Paul to death for being a Jewish troublemaker, and now 270 of them are marching through the night to protect him. That's the power of Roman citizenship. Pretty amazing, huh? Notice, though, that Claudius doesn't go himself. He just sends a letter. We're in Acts 23, 26 through 30. You can find that letter in the Bible, page 1635. And Claudius, in his letter, kind of fudges over the part where he arrested and almost flogged a Roman citizen. Instead, he says, Governor Felix, here's a citizen I rescued from the Jewish leaders. What a hero I am. And since Claudius sees this no-win scenario of Paul, he's clearly passing the buck. He said, I'm sending this man to you, Felix, to try his case. Your problem now. Tag, you're it. And we turn the page to chapter 24. Now Paul's in jail in Caesarea, still no formal charges against him. And in Acts 24, the high priest shows up, because there are still 40 men starving, literally, for the chance to kill Paul. So the high priest accuses Paul of trying to create trouble and desecrate the temple. And as a Roman citizen, Paul gets the chance to defend himself. So he protests, I was not making trouble. I was just at the temple to worship. They're the ones that took issue with me since I'm a follower of Jesus. But then he said if the charge against him wasn't being Jewish enough or that he wanted to desecrate the worship, he took issue with that. Because he believed that in following Jesus, he was being the most loyal and faithful Jew of all. Because he wholeheartedly believed that Jesus is the revelation of what the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been leading us to know of him all along. And he didn't want to desecrate God's holy worship, he only wanted to let that worship be in spirit and in truth. And Felix immediately sees where this is heading and that he has to head it off before they get dicey. So in Acts 24, starting at verse 22, then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, that's what they called the Jesus movement at the time, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he says, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. So Felix tables the Paul issue because he is a premier politician and he knows if he's going to make any kind of decision, he's going to need a scapegoat first or a sacrificial lamb. So he says, I'll wait for Lysias to come and give his testimony. But Lysias wasn't born yesterday, which we can see in the the fact that he never shows up. You're looking for a scapegoat, Felix? I think I'm going to be very busy somewhere else the next several years. (laughs) And he is. So Felix shelves Paul, and he's happy to do that because he finds Paul to be an interesting kind of pet. His wife, Drazilla wants to hear Paul's ideas, so Felix is pleased to be able to summon her. And his house arrest serves as one part imprisonment, so he won't make trouble, and one part protection, so his enemies can't kill him. But Felix soon finds out when he hears Paul speak that Paul brings trouble of a completely different kind. Because Paul's words stir up in Felix a troubled spirit. In Acts 24.24, several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. And he said, that's enough for now. You may leave. (laughs) When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. Now, this Felix has a really interesting story. He has a rags-to-riches one. He was actually born as a slave, and he somehow managed to befriend a highly-connected patron who elevated him to the rank of governor. But even there, nobody in the ranks of power ever really forgot that Felix wasn't one of them. So he was infamous both for his own history and for his choice of wife, who was a Jewish princess who had actually been married to someone else at the time that he had found her. And N.T. Wright, in his commentary on Acts, calls Drusilla the Marilyn Monroe of their day. Maybe for us it would be a Kardashian. I don't know. But they were a very famous couple, Felix the ex-slave governor and the scandalous socialite princess. And here they are sitting down with Paul, the ex-Pharisee learning about faith in a crucified and resurrected Jewish carpenter named Jesus of Nazareth. Now, who would imagine that scenario? What we do know about Felix from the word is that one of his motives in talking to Paul was that he was hoping that Paul's friends would pay for his release. That way Felix would get a profit and he'd have a fourth option out of his Paul problem. Pay me and then I have an easy excuse to let you go. Free win-win. He kept waiting for this to happen and it never did. Which completely baffled him. Felix did not get Paul at all. Because it would be so easy for him to get free. There were zero Roman charges against him. And so with the right funds, he could just walk. But as far as he could tell, Paul, who had openly said he had been raising funds to help the churches before this, hadn't even asked his friends for that kind of help. And to Felix, Paul's behavior didn't make any earthly sense. It was almost like he was intentionally staying in jail. Why would he do that? You see, Felix's guiding principle all his life had been, what's in it for me? But clearly, Paul was being guided by something else, someone else. And in the end, that is what unnerved and disturbed Felix the most. Because you can imagine a man with Felix's background might live his life always feeling the pressure to prove that he was actually good enough to hold the power that he had. And he was powerful, politically connected, married to a trophy wife with heirs. What more could he possibly want? And yet here was Paul, who on the surface had nothing. Prisoner, dependent on his friends, single, without heirs, except in the faith, constantly in trouble. And yet here Paul seemed to have this ridiculous amount of peace about who he was, about his value, his purpose, his mission. And it led him to have a disturbing indifference toward all of the things that Felix valued the most. Paul didn't seem to care about money or power, even his freedom. And frankly, that demonstrated the higher authority at work in Paul's life more powerfully than anything Paul could have said. And it made the stuff that Paul did say all the more disturbing to Felix. Paul's words got through the cracks. They hit the stuff that Felix was trying not to admit was there. The is there something more itch. The Holy Spirit was working through Paul's words to hit just those things Felix needed to think about, the things that deep down he knew he didn't have figured out. Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Righteousness, that's being right with God. And both Deuteronomy and Jesus say this can be summed up in two things, love God, love neighbor. But when your grid for life is what's in it for me, loving God and neighbor don't tend to come up much. And if your motto is, what's in it for me, why would you bother with self-control? What would be the point of that. And judgment, the idea that there is one to whom even Governor Felix would one day be accountable for these things. It's not something he wanted to hear. Being told that God, the ultimate authority, actually cares about loving God and loving people, and seeing that backed up by Paul's choices, that scares Felix half to death. Because he's starting to become aware that there is a power bigger than Paul and himself. And it's a power he can't control or politic or handle. There is a someone who won't be ignored forever. And even though it scares him, we see that he still keeps talking to Paul. And that tells me the Holy Spirit has gotten in somewhere. Identifying that there are broken places in Felix's life that only Jesus can bring to wholeness. Now, Paul passes out of Felix's life to become a governor of Festus's problem next before we see what kind of impact that he had on Felix. And Festus also realizes he can't do anything with Paul but try to pass the buck to Agrippa and then to Rome in chapters 25 and 26. But I believe that Paul had played the part that he was called to play in Felix's life. Because sometimes our role is not to comfort the disturbed, but to disturb the comfortable those who think they already have all of life's answers. Which reminds me of a story you might have heard me share before. During World War II, there were two soldiers who were taken prisoner of war, and they were waiting in the same cell to see if they would be executed. And one was a man of faith, the other was not. And in this horrible place, the Christian tried to offer the other man the comfort of Jesus' promise, that there was a forgiveness, a love, eternal hope and Jesus' love, that Jesus chose to die for us first so that we could know, because of his grace, that we'll never have to die alone or without hope. And the Christian offered this with the best of intentions. But the atheist, afraid and angry, furiously ripped him apart, calling him ignorant and ridiculous. How stupid could you be that town out that fairy tale in the horrible place like this? Get away from me. Shut up and keep your crazy to yourself. And From the shock and the hurt on the Christian's face, he could see he wounded him, hit him in a place where he'd probably been wounded and rejected so many times before. And the Christian, devastated, turned away, and he cried out an apology to Jesus for being too weak in his witness even to convey hope in a place like this. And heartbroken by his own inability, the Christian sat with tears running down his face as he silently prayed. But as he prayed, a peace gradually came over him. And after a while, a smile even started to show up in the corner of his eyes and his lips, and eventually he curled up on his cot and he peacefully drifted into sleep. And the atheist watched this happen. At first, fuming angry that he was subjected to hearing this drivel at this horrible moment in his life, but as he watched this transformation, eventually it started to get to him. Because this Christian obviously wasn't pulling himself together. He didn't consider this man to be particularly strong or admirable. And yet, somehow, while he himself was wide awake and stressed and in physical pain and his anxiety, this man he considered weak was asleep, having found right before his eyes real comfort, real hope, real peace. And that disturbed him. It troubled his spirit to wonder, have I dismissed something too quickly? Is there someone here that I haven't dared even consider? Am I the weak one? Am I the one afraid? Now this man had only ever been influenced by obvious displays of strength before, so it was baffling to him that in this moment it was the undeniable weakness of this Christian that had revealed to him something he hadn't considered before, that the power of this faith came from the outside. Someone else was at work here, someone real. that creeped him out (laughs) it completely unsettled all of his previous assumptions and it brought him face to face with his own stubborn inability to admit that he might need the help of a power greater than himself and all through the night he wrestled with that and by the next morning's light he had taken his first small step of surrender into what would become a life-changing trust in jesus But God didn't use this Christian's flawless rhetoric or eloquence to do that. God used his weakness, his dependence, his need to show Jesus' power. Because in our weakness, he is strong. You see, the greatest argument for Jesus isn't our perfection or our strength or our power, but his. And honestly, when we start relying on ours, that's when we're going to end up misrepresenting him. And when your faith comes under fire, you are probably going to have moments where you feel like you absolutely blew it. But if we stay humble and real, the Holy Spirit can use even what we think are our biggest failures to speak of who he is through us. And Paul, speaking about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come with Felix, that probably felt like a mission fail to him because he got thrown out of the room. (laughs) You can think him asking himself, why in the world did I start with that? But the truth is, all of those things pointed directly to Jesus. Righteousness, being right with God, only happens through what Jesus does for us. Admitting we need him to be our righteousness. And self-control is actually a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't actually come from the self. It comes from the power of God at work in us. Helping us live godly ways by his power. Because even if we know the right thing to do, we still need God's help to do it. And sometimes we still don't. And so when it comes to the judgment to come, we enter knowing we are all guilty, which the unbelieving world is all too quick to point out to us. You Christians think you are so holy and you're a mess. And our answer to that always needs to be, you are so right. We are a total mess. We are such a mess that we don't dare trust us for any kind of deserved future. We only trust that the God who so loved us sent his only son to be our righteousness, to be our champion, our advocate, our hope, not because of what we've done, but because of who he is and what he has done for us. The only hope we have is Jesus. And human power or politics or connections or love or admiration, they have nothing to do with that. Jesus says in Mark 13, when he tells us we'll be brought before kings to testify, in verse 11, he says, whenever you are arrested and brought to trial... Do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. And I think we can often assume what Jesus meant there is the Holy Spirit is going to give you amazing, intellectually dazzling, unbeatable rhetoric to stump anybody who tries to challenge you so you can win any debate. That's our translation. That's not what Jesus says. Because maybe making your debater feel defeated won't actually bring them to a place of wanting to know more about Jesus. Winning is not the mission. Jesus' love reaching people is the mission. And maybe it's your weakness that'll do that better than your strength. See, Paul didn't try to escape Roman prison because Jesus had told him that one day he would present the gospel in Rome. And eventually, because he was in Roman custody, that journey took place on the Roman dime. Paul's goal wasn't what's in it for me. His goal was living the mission where he was, trusting the God who is now here, was with him wherever he was. And for much of this particular season of his life, when Paul wasn't being marched in front of rulers, he was under house arrest. And I wonder if he thought this season of his life was a waste. But it was in those prison cells that Paul wrote the letters to the churches that became part of our New Testament scriptures became a powerful tool that the Holy Spirit has used to introduce hearts to the saving power of Jesus Christ, to bless and to challenge and to change lives for 2,000 years. So when we look back from the perspective of history, we can see that those years Paul was in chains were actually his most impactful years of his life. Not for that generation, but for every generation that followed. How could Paul know that? In his season of nowhere, the Lord was laying the foundation for us today to know that that same God is now here for you. So wherever you find yourself today, know that there is no such place as nowhere to God. And even in the seasons where you feel weak, know that he is strong. Live your faith. Be honest with him and others. You don't have to pretend you know more than you do. You're not Jesus. Let him be. Because Jesus doesn't need your help He wants your heart. And when your faith is on trial, it's always going to be his love that is the defense. Because his love will always be the only thing that changes the world. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, today we confess there are times like Paul, we don't see where you're moving. But we do see the powerful things you did in Paul even then. So Lord, help us never underestimate you. And whatever season we're in, help us to see that you are now here. And help us to see what you'll do through hearts that are yielded to your love. And our weakness, you're strong, Jesus, so lead us. Whether you use us to comfort the disturbed or disturb the comfortable. Use wounded healers like us, Lord, to draw all hearts to your grace. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.